been a great morning already. Excited as well. We have baptism this morning, so at the end of the service, we're going to celebrate with two that uh, have put their faith in Jesus Christ, and we're going to celebrate that as a body. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Before we get there, though, we want to look at another letter uh, in this series that we've been in, the seven letters to seven churches, the letter that Carthy just read to us to the church at Philadelphia. So go ahead and take your Bibles. If you have them, open up to Revelation chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me just make a couple of notes, a couple of announcements. Don't forget about our Good Friday service, so not this coming Friday, but the Friday after that, March 25th. We'll be right here at 6 p.m. Celebrate Good Friday together. You'll see a couple of images on the screen from our service last year. It was just a really special time for us as a body. Those of you that were there, I'm sure you remember that. Now here's the thing about Good Friday service. If you haven't been to one or you haven't been to one in a while, one of the reasons that I love to gather as a body on Good Friday is to allow the weight of the cross to sit on us before we celebrate the new life that's in the resurrection on Sunday. It actually enhances, if you kind of think of it this way, it makes Sunday more celebratory if you've kind of walked through the path of Christ and kind of sat in the, 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 the weight and, and the the realness of his agony for you. Just let that sink in. So uh, as we've been walking through this Easter journey with our daughters and teaching them about what it means, don't gloss over that cross, right? We want to sit in that together as a body. So Good Friday, 6 p.m., uh, two Fridays from now. Hopefully you can join us here for that. And then Easter Sunday morning, three services, 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11. You'll notice that the tickets, just pick up a ticket for you and your family. I think I saw that middle service, all, the tickets are already gone for that. Now, here's the thing on the tickets. We do these so not everybody shows up at one service. And obviously, the, the, apparently the popular one, at least by ticket distribution, is that 9.30 service. We want to have space for you when you come. That's why we do the tickets. So we still have 8 o'clock tickets available and 11. Now, a note about the 8 a.m. service. We will not provide any uh, fellowship kids programming for that. So if you bring your kids at 8, they'll be in here at the worship service. And hey, that's not a bad thing. You know, to celebrate Easter Sunday morning with your whole family could be a cool thing. There will be some room in here at 8 o'clock, I would imagine. Probably the only service with some room. It'll be a little bit of a shorter service, about an hour service. Typically, we go about 70 minutes or so. So uh, feel free. Bring your kids in here. It'd be a great time if you want to do that, 8 o'clock a.m. And then, of course, also the 11, 11 o'clock service. We will have, have the child care at the 11 o'clock service. So that is coming up. We're excited about that as a body. Well, let's look at Revelation. I want to walk back through the text that Carthy already read. And let me say this, as we've been through this series, and believe it or not, we only have one more letter. Next week, Lloyd will be here. We'll talk about the last letter, letter to Laodicea. As I've been thinking about all these letters and what's happening, what John is writing, and John's recording this vision that he had of Jesus Christ and the words of Jesus Christ. And if you think about all the messages... And then even you, you fast forward and think about the rest of the book of Revelation where all the, the end times are going to be revealed and it's going to culminate in this beautiful picture of the new Jerusalem, you know, heaven coming to earth, you know, coming down out of the clouds and, and resting on earth and all will be right, all will be well. Revelation 21, 22, that's what's coming down the pike. You think about all this and you put it in the cultural historical context of the late first century church, which is when this uh, letter was written, it starts to make sense of why the Spirit chose to give this particular letter to the church at that time. Let me explain. Y'all know the early church was persecuted. 
And not just like they were talked bad against on talk radio. I mean, this was big persecution. This was the threat of death. And this was starting to get very serious at the time that Revelation was written. And so late first century, early second century, Christians were being killed frequently and often. And here's how it would normally work. If someone turned you in and reported you to the Roman authorities, now that person's a Christian, you'd get called before the authorities and they'd ask you, are you a Christian? You know, do you believe in this Jesus? Do you claim that he's the true Lord, that he's the true king? Essentially what they're doing is they're testing your allegiance. Because in that day, you, you're supposed to worship Caesar and you're supposed to worship the other gods that Caesar worships. And yet the Christians were saying, no, the true king, the true God is one. Jesus, one, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So you get called before the authorities. They'd say, now's your chance to recant. If you don't recant your faith in Jesus Christ, then you're going to be killed. And what happened in that late first century, early second century is Christians by the thousands refused to recant and went to their deaths. Most often they went to their deaths with remarkable peace, remarkable tranquility, sharing the good news with smiles on their faces even as their heads were chopped off or they were thrown to the lions or the the flames were burning them up. Now how did that happen? And by the way, the, the testimony of the martyrs is what made that explosive growth happen through the second and third centuries of the early church. So fast forward a couple hundred years, Christianity is going to be all over the Roman Empire, right? And it will eventually become the official faith of the Roman Empire. How did that happen? The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Now, how did this book of Revelation prepare them to face that kind of persecution? Because we know historically, the book did its job, right? It created these martyrs that, that, that did these amazing, faced, faced death in amazing ways. How did it do that? If you think about what Revelation is all about, it's essentially taking invisible realities and, and, and making them so we can see them. It's taking invisible realities and making them visible. So in other words, over and over again in Revelation, you hear things like there, there's, there's this other dimension out here. There's a heaven that is to come. There's spiritual forces that are here now. All these invisible things. And that's why, you know, all the images of Revelation and all these other things. It's God's attempt to try to bring into our conscious reality that this life that we see now and touch and feel and taste, it's not all that there is. There is a greater invisible reality. So making that invisible reality and making it visible. And then the second thing that Revelation does is it takes temporary things and makes them so they actually feel temporary. Right? Because we get caught up in our careers and our lives and our kids and our you know, day-to-day lives and our food and our homes. It's all temporary. And the study of Revelation reminds you it's, it's not going to be here. <laughs> There's only a few things that will last. Right? Your faith in Jesus Christ is what will stand when everything else is subject to flames. <laughs> it's going to burn up. All right, so how did this help the church of Philadelphia in particular? You need to know a little bit of background about this church. Philadelphia was a new city. In fact, it was the newest of the cities of all the seven cities that were written letters to. It was in a very fertile land. They produced a lot, a lot of vineyards, a lot of grapes, a lot of wine, this kind of thing, other crops. But it was also in a place where there was a lot of uh, volcanic activity nearby, and then they were on a fault line for earthquakes. So frequently, this city was shaken. Its literal foundations were shaking. And so the people, when earthquakes would come, they would flee the city, and they would go out there, and then when the earthquakes were over, they'd come back, rebuild the city, and start all over again. 
In fact, we have an account from a first century geographer. didn't know there were any first century geographers, but there was at least one. His name was Strabo, and he wrote the definitive geography of the Roman Empire at the time. And this is what he wrote about Philadelphia. And he wrote this uh, before Christ began his ministry, probably when Christ was around a teenager or in his early 20s. Strabo wrote these words. Beyond the Lydians are the Mesians and the city of Philadelphia, full of earthquakes, for the walls never cease being cracked. Different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. That is why the actual town has few inhabitants, but the majority live as farmers in the countryside as they have fertile land. But one is surprised, even at the few, that they are so fond of the place when they have such insecure dwellings. Isn't that interesting? So fond of the place, even though their dwellings are insecure. You know what that reminded me of? Us. Oh, he said L.A. Yeah, California. I keep meeting people here that that are like transplants from California. They're all like fleeing the earthquakes or the the, the West Coast or what have you. But but it actually reminds me of, of us now on this earth. We're so fond of the place, despite the fact that our dwellings are insecure. Temporary. You see, and that's what revelation will do for you. It's constantly pointing you toward permanent things away from temporary things. It's constantly pointing you toward invisible realities that are more real than the visible things that you can see and touch and taste here right now. And we need this, don't we? We need this just as much as this first church did, even though our persecution may not look like their persecution did, even though our faith journey may feel a little different than theirs. So here's what I want to do. I want to summarize to you the main idea of this letter, and then we're going to look for this theme through each verse. We'll walk back through it verse by verse. Here's the main idea, what Jesus is saying to the church of Philadelphia. And you may have picked up on this theme as Carthy read, read the message. It's very simple. Jesus is reminding them that he's in control and they belong to him. They're his. I'm in control, he says. Not those exact words, but we'll see it played out. I'm in control and you belong to me. You're mine. That's the simple message. You'll see that theme in every single verse. And I think the reason that Jesus gave this message to the Philadelphians is because he knew that that was the message they needed to hear. That was the invisible reality they needed to be reminded of as they faced the persecution and the earthquakes and everything else that's going in their visible reality. They need to keep their minds on invisible, permanent things. I am in control, Jesus says, and you are mine. Well, let's see that theme play out starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. I love that picture of Christ. I love that picture of Christ. In fact, of the seven churches, they're all addressed in different ways, calling out different descriptions of Jesus. This one's my favorite. I love the idea of the sovereignty of Jesus that he opens doors, and when he does, nobody's closing that door. That he closes other doors, and when he does, nobody's opening that door. You see the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Now, I want to point out even before the door part, it says, he who is holy, who is true. You see those phrases in, in uh, verse 7? In Greek, it simply has the definite article, you know, T-H-E, the holy. The holy, the true, says Right? And so we translate that in English, maybe the holy one, the true one. There's, there's not a bunch of holy ones, a bunch of true ones, one holy one, one true one. His name is Jesus. This is what he says. And he goes on. Now, 
The key of David is an interesting reference. You may be wondering, what's the key of David? And what are these closed doors and open doors? What's this all about? If you have cross-references in your Bible, there may be a cross-reference to Isaiah 22, verse 22. This was a prophecy that Isaiah gave in the days of King Hezekiah. And you don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you what it says. There was a steward, or kind of a, um, a first-in-command in Isaiah's kingdom. He was called the Keeper of the Keys. He had literally probably had all the keys of the palace, right? And he was the one. So those of you that love Downton Abbey, for example, it just finished up, like some of us, okay, that's half the room, so I don't know what you're talking about. Got a couple hands over here. Think about Carson, all right? He's got the keys to the palace. Like, he can go anywhere else. All the other servants, you know, they stay down here, but Carson can go anywhere else. He's got a close relationship with the head of the household. Well, this man had turned wicked in, in, in Hezekiah's day. So the keeper of the keys was evil. And what the prophecy says to this keeper of the keys is, I'm going to take away your keys. I'm going to take away your authority and I'm going to give it to someone else. And that person will close doors that you won't be able to open. And he will open doors that you won't be able to shut. And I'm going to cast you out. So what John is doing, really what Jesus is doing in this vision that John is recording is he's reaching all the way back to this prophecy from Isaiah 22. He's saying, remember that prophecy about the keeper of the keys in Hezekiah's day? Jesus, I, Jesus is saying, am the true keeper of the keys. I am the one that has ultimate authority. And I will open doors that no one will close, and I will close doors that no one will open. The emphasis is on God's complete and utter sovereignty. Nothing happens in the kingdom without Jesus Christ's knowledge and control. He shuts doors. He opens doors according to his pleasure, according to his glory. And I think this applies to all creation. But I think in this particular text, the specific reference is pointing toward the new city, the new Jerusalem that will come, heaven, the eternal kingdom. And the message here is, if I open a door for you into the eternal kingdom, Jesus says, no one can shut it. But on the other hand, if that door is shut, only I can open it. You can't open the door to the eternal kingdom. Doesn't matter how hard you work, doesn't matter how hard you try, how religious you are, it is me that opens the door for you. See, I am the door. Remember, Jesus uses that analogy as well. So there's all kinds of beautiful imagery that's just buried in this one little description of Jesus as the one who opens doors and shuts doors. And we'll come back to that in our application at the end of the message. Let's move on in verse 8. I know your deeds, Jesus says. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, I've done a lot of research on this verse and I have to tell you, I don't like the way the NASB translates a part of this. And that's the translation we use. If you're reading from the ESV or the NIV or any other translation, it probably words it a little bit differently. It'll probably say something like this. Notice the difference. I know your deeds that although you only have a little power, you have kept my word and have not benigned my name, so I've put before you an open door. You see the difference? Maybe you didn't catch it. I think what Jesus is actually saying is not I've opened a door because you have a little power. It's the, almost the opposite of that. He's saying, I know you're weak. I know you're small. I know you have but a little power. In spite of your weakness, in spite of your small little power, I have opened the door for you because you've been faithful to me. 
That's the gist of what's going on. So don't think this power is what opened up the door. Jesus opened the door in spite of their power, because their small power, because they had been faithful. Now, what is the open door? I believe it's likely a reference to the, the kingdom, the new Jerusalem, and he's, he's assuring them of their salvation here. I've opened a door which no one can shut. However, there's another possibility that I think warrants some merit, some discussion. Several other places in the New Testament, the open door is used as an analogy of an opportunity for the gospel to spread. So John doesn't use it anywhere else, but Paul does on a couple occasions. So it's possible that a secondary meaning of this open door is the gospel is going to advance in Philadelphia. I'm opening the door for you. So I don't know that you really have to choose between those two. I think it points to the uh, New Jerusalem door being open for them, eternal life. I also think it could be a reference to an opportunity for the gospel to go forward. There's an open door for this church. That must have been a big encouragement to them. Let's keep going, verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Some of you may remember almost these exact same words about the synagogue of Satan was referenced to the letter to the church at Smyrna. Interestingly, there are only two of the seven churches that get no rebuke from Jesus. Smyrna, Philadelphia, Both of them, maybe this was coincidental, maybe it was not coincidental, were facing persecution from the Jews of the day, the synagogue that was local in their town, and Jesus is encouraging him in this. Now, to understand what he's saying here, they call themselves Jews but are are liars. They actually were Jews. But let me explain what's happening historically in, in, in the context of this. Christians who came from a Jewish background were not casting off their Judaism to to step into a new faith. There was no need for that. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus came and addressed the Jews. And Jesus essentially said, this is God's revelation to you in me, Jewish people. Now, Jesus knew that the Gentiles would believe as well, and he came for the Gentiles as well. But in his three years of ministry, he was focused on the Jewish people. So when the Jewish people came to put their faith in Jesus... They were still Jews, but what was happening was the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus were kicking them out of the synagogue and were saying, you're not God's people, you follow Jesus. You're actually following Satan because we think Jesus was from Satan. We're truly God's people. We're the Jews. And you see, what had actually happened was now they were the ones who had left true belief, not the Christians, you see. So what Christ is doing is settling this debate. He's saying, I will show them that I love you. I will show, you, show them that you are my people, that I have revealed myself to them and they have chosen to reject me. They have followed the lies of Satan, the synagogue of Satan. Now what had probably also happened, and this is important in this context of open doors and shut doors, the door to the synagogue in Philadelphia would have been literally locked, literally closed to the Christians. So imagine yourself growing up worshiping the synagogue. You come to believe in Jesus as the fulfillment of all your Jewish prophecy. You're no less a Jew. In fact, you might even describe yourself now as a, a completed Jew, as Messianic Jews use that term sometimes. And yet the door to the place of worship is locked on you, you see. You're cast out of the synagogue, you see. Close the door. Jesus is saying... That door's been closed, but I have opened a new door. 
no one can shut. A better door, you see. What Jesus is telling them is, I'm in control. Not the synagogue rulers, I'm in control. And you are mine. You are my people. I'm in control and you are mine. That's the refrain, the theme throughout these verses. Let's keep rolling, verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, some of you, if you're into end times theology, you may recognize this verse as a verse that gets talked a lot about in reference to the rapture. So the rapture is the idea that before the great tribulation comes upon the earth, Jesus will take up his church. He will rapture his church so that they will be spared from the great tribulation. There's different debates on when that rapture will happen. Will it happen before the tribulation or after? So you have pre-rapture, you've got post-rapture, all these different, or or pre-tribulation, post-tribulation rather. You have all these different theological ideas. And some would point to this verse and say, well, here's evidence. Jesus is saying, I will uh, keep you from, I'll keep you away from it. There's just one problem with that. And I'm not saying that that view is incorrect, by the way. But there's just one problem with using this verse. The Greek word that's translated from, I will keep you from, could also be translated through. It's a little word, ek. You know, we would say E-K. And sometimes it's translated from, sometimes it's translated through based on the context. So it could say, I'll keep you from tribulation. Or it could also say, I'll keep you through the tribulation. In other words, I'll guard you, I'll hold on to you, I'll keep you safe. I don't think it's that important to, to figure out exactly what was intended by this because the main idea is the same. Jesus is in control. The church is his. He's going to guard. He's going to protect. He's going to keep. Whether it's guarding through the tribulation or whether it's rescuing us before the tribulation and keeping us that way, that's up to him. That's up to him. We'll see how that plays out. Right? I'm hoping. I'm hoping we're raptured out of here before the tribulation. I think we've got some pretty good evidence of that. Uh, but there are other people that I respect that, that feel differently. And that's fine. We know that Jesus is going to keep us safe. So the main idea is in the verb, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you. Right? Protect, safeguard. I'll keep you. I'm in control and you are mine. That's what Jesus is saying. In verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. This is the only command in the letter. This church doesn't get a rebuke. They weren't perfect. But all Jesus wanted to say is keep on keeping on. You've been cast out of the synagogue. You're being persecuted, yet you're staying faithful. Don't drop the baton before you cross the finish line. Keep on. Keep on holding on to me as I hold on to you. The image of the crown was used in that day for the winner of the games. The winner of the race got a, a crown. You know, the, the leaf, you know, be placed on their head. You've seen drawings of that or images of that. And, and that's the crown that's being referenced here. Jesus is saying the race will end soon. I'm coming. Don't drop the baton. Just keep on keeping on. And you'll cross the line because I am in control I'm the one who decides when the race is over, Jesus says. Not you, and you are mine. I'm cheering for you. I'm rooting for you as you run this race. Now, we get to verse 12, and Jesus is going to paint a vision for them of their future. 
right, the invisible reality that will become visible. The permanent thing that will overcome the temporal thing. Here it is in verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Beautiful promise there. Uh, Let me tell you the significance of the pillar. Remember the earthquakes. This city had a shaky foundation. And so what would happen often when they would flee out of the city, you know, their buildings would crumble, they'd come back to assess the damage. Sometimes the only thing that would be standing were the pillars of the buildings, right? The most solid parts of the structure. The last thing that's going to go down. And Jesus is saying, you overcome, he who overcomes, you'll be a pillar. You're going to be placed in cement in this new city and you'll never have to leave it. Did you catch that? Look, Look back at the verse for just a minute. He will not go out from it anymore. There'll be no more earthquakes in this city that you have to go out of the city and go live in the country for a little while and come back and assess the damage. That won't happen. So you're going to be a solid pillar and you're never going to have to flee away from it. And then this beautiful imagery of the name. I'm going to write my name on you. Name designates ownership. So whenever Jody and I give a gift to one of our daughters or, you know, sometimes you got to get three of the same thing. You know, you got three daughters, you got to get three of the same thing. We know it's something they really love if they run over and find the Sharpie and write Ansley or Elisa or Karis on that, right? This is mine, you know. Now you're going to got to talk to them about sharing, but, <laughs> but it's still this ownership idea. Like, this is their teddy bear, right? This is their bike helmet. Right? This is their scooter. It's theirs. Jesus is saying, I'm going to write my name on you. You are mine. And I'm going to write the name of this new city you're going to be in. Because it's your permanent place. So back then you identified yourself according to where you lived. Right? So Jesus of Nazareth. You hear that phrase over and over again? That was in keeping with the custom of the day right? Rob from Franklin or whatever it is. Now, we all move around so much. It's, someone asked me where you're from. I'm kind of like, well, I grew up here and then I moved here and then now I live here. In their culture, though, your identity was, was burned into you in that city or that region or that district that you're from. Jesus is saying, your true city, your true home, I'm going to have a name written on you. My name, your name, or this, the name of the city that you're going to be in ownership. See, he's saying, you are mine. You're my beloved. You're my people. You're my children. I will take you into safety. I will keep you because I am in control and you are mine. Finally, verse 13, the letters all end with the same sentence. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this is talking about us. Right? Whoever has an ear to hear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to the church in this particular letter? Jesus is in control and you are his. Jesus is in control and you are his. Do you have an ear to hear that for you this morning? I want to spend 
the time we have left applying this to us. Because this message is not just for Philadelphia. It's for us. Jesus is saying to us, the church at Franklin, Tennessee, I'm in control, he says, and you are mine. Now, what does that mean for us? Uh, I actually think you can hear that a couple of different ways this morning, depending on where you're at. For some of you, it may be a comfort. For the others of you, it may actually be a, a challenge, a push, an exhortation. Let me explain what I mean. I, I, I want to start with those of you that I think it may be a push, a challenge to. And let's say you're in a stage right now where life's going pretty well. You're not really facing any unknown mysteries. Your career's going fine. Your family's going fine. The doors seem to be opening for you, and life's not perfect, but it's okay. It's pretty good. In those seasons, we tend to take our eye off of who's in charge, don't we? Right? It's kind of like riding the bike, take your eyes off the handlebar, just kind of looking around, yada, 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 right? Everything's going fine. It's a sunny day. Everything's good. Jesus is saying, don't forget, I'm in control, not you, not you. So don't try to be in control. And you are mine. You don't belong to you. You're not your own. I've bought you with a price, he's saying. I'm in control and you are mine. Now, to really understand this, I hope, actually grates a few of you in the room. And here's what I mean by that. If you're honest, we all like to be in control. We all like to be our own little gods. We like to make our own decisions. We like to do what we want to do. We don't want to submit to anyone's authority over us. We don't want to submit to God's authority because what if he doesn't give us what we want? <laughs> or what if he tells us to like, go be missionaries in China or some crazy thing like this? Or what if he doesn't give us a child? Or what if we never get to get married? Or what if the career doesn't pan out? Or what if something bad happens and we lose our home? Or what if the doctor calls and he says, I think it's cancer, you see? We don't like anyone else being in control. In fact, I think this is particularly true in our cultural context. We're Americans. We dug ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? We made this country great. Yes and no. Yes and no. Who's in control? Who's in charge? Who opens doors that no one can shut? Who closes doors that no one can open? The sovereign God, our creator. I want you just to think for just a minute. That those of us that, that sort of feel like, you know, yeah, most of the doors are open right now. I want you to realize how little you actually have control over. You did not choose the year you were born. You did not choose your DNA your family life, you did not choose your gender, you did not choose your racial background, you did not choose the economic climate that existed when you graduated from college, you did not choose your talents, your special abilities, you did not choose your physique. Now maybe you can shape it just a little bit, but those genes are powerful things, right? They're at work. And now there's this argument of, you know, personality, is it more nurture? Is it more nature? And by the way, science, as it's looking at it, is leaning more toward nature. It's leaning more toward your DNA, you know, maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. Here's what I know about nurture or nature. There's very little that you chose. Amen. Now, some of you are thinking, but I worked hard. Yeah, great, you know, good for you. You know, that work ethic may have been instilled in you by your upbringing, I don't know. Or maybe it wasn't. There was something that happened in your life or for some way that you just decided, I'm going to make this choice to work hard. Good for you, but don't forget, you didn't get there on your own. There were doors that were open to you that were invisible to your eyes. Remember when Dave Ramsey was here not too long ago? You know, Dave's a guy who's had a little bit of success. <laughs> and Dave said at the end of his message, he goes, 
You know, if you see a turtle, I'm not going to try to imitate his voice. I couldn't do it. But <laughs> you see a turtle on a fence post, you know somebody put it there. That turtle wasn't going to get up there on its own, right? We're all turtles. So if you've had some success in life or you're experiencing some good flourishing, give glory to God, your creator. Tim Keller wrote, said it this way. He was kind of uh, unpacking this idea a little bit of how we need to be grateful to our creator for any, any blessing in our lives. He says, do you realize that unless you are continually grateful for everything you experience, you're a cosmic plagiarist refusing to acknowledge what you've gotten and who you've gotten it from. I think that's true. And I think that's some of us in the room if we're not careful, right? If we're not careful. Not only should you give credit where credit is due, but you should also submit completely to the authority of your creator on your life. And that's the rub. That's where it gets hard. That's where most of us need to push. It's one thing to say, okay, God, I, I'm going to give you gratitude. I may, I may even tithe my money as an acknowledgement that it all belongs to you. But, but to also say, you can give and you can take away as you see fit. My hands are open. Oh, that's hard. That's hard. We don't like someone to be in charge of us. But consider this. A craftsman has full rights over his workmanship. An artist has full rights over her artwork. A songwriter has full rights over his song. You see, if he's your creator, he has full authority and full rights over your life, over the doors that are open, over the doors that are shut. Why does the creator have authority? Why does the artist have authority over their art? Well, one, there was nothing and then there was something. And the reason that you exist is because you were created. That's part of it. But the other thing is, it's the artist that most understands the art, that knows what's best for the art, that understands how it works, that's able to put it into situations and positions so that it can be fully uh, uh, glorified, if you will, in the workmanship. You see, Jesus knows what setting you're going to struggle in and flourish in. If you're in a season of struggle, he knows. He's even allowed, perhaps designed is even another way to say it, for you to be exactly where you are. And I know for some of you, if you're in a hard place, that's hard to hear. That's hard to hear. But for those of you whose life is going well, don't forget you're under the authority of your creator you are his not your own and he is in control not you now i want to talk just real briefly to those of you that are in a different place your life's not going so great right now you know there's there's something that's staring you in the face you know it, it could be a, a a kid that's just off the rails in some ways or it could be an economic hardship or some uncertainty about your future maybe it's just a dream or a desire that feels like it's died in you and you're wrestling through it. Maybe it's a, a medical deal. Maybe it's a relational deal. There's all kinds of things. I want to encourage you with something in this letter this morning. Have you ever thought about suffering as closed doors? And that's what it is. Could be a closed door of career, closed door of relationship, closed door of health, closed door of something about your future. A door has been closed. That's what suffering is. You want to get in the door. You've banged against the door for whatever reason the sovereign God has left it shut. 
and you really start playing this out in your head, and the first place you're going to go is you're going to go, woe is me. If it's God that shut this door, what does that mean about how he feels about me? Why would he shut that door on me? And I want to take you to a place of hope because the very one who wrote these words, the very one who was described as the one who opens the doors that no one can close and shuts the doors that no one can open, he faced a closed door of his own. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember him praying fervently to the Father? Would you open a different door? Would you provide a different way? Would you enable me to do your work without going to the cross? Is there any other way? Would you open a different door? Pounding on the door. This is the very Son of God asking his Father, don't shut that door on me. Don't shut that door on me. Open it up. The Father chose to keep the door shut, locked from his own Son. The keeper of the keys was locked out. And then he came to this moment where he said, not my will, but your will. And in that moment, in choosing that, he was choosing to suffer. And he did. He suffered greatly. But you know what came after the suffering? Resurrection. Glory, you see. Suffering. Then glory. This is the way of Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means you face your closed door, your locked door, and you pound on it. You follow his example. And maybe that door gets open for you, and maybe it doesn't. Either way, you say, but not my will. Your will be done. How can you do that? You can't except for the empowering of the one who holds the keys. The empowering of the one who, although he holds the keys, was willing to submit himself to the closed door that his father chose to remain shut. You see, you submit yourself to him, you follow him, you put it all on him, and you say, I can't, but you can through me. That's how you suffer well. That's the call of the church. Jesus says, I am in control, and you are mine. Stay with me. Persevere. Endure. Don't give up. The race is almost done. I'm going to pray for us in a minute, and then we're going to celebrate baptisms. I want to say this about baptisms. You know this idea of taking invisible realities and making them visible? That's what baptism is. So you're going to get to meet two ladies today. In, in their past, in their journey, something miraculous has happened inside here that you can't see. It's invisible right? Now, it shows in their countenance, but it's not really something that you can touch or or, or really see or hear. It's the Holy Spirit that has come to indwell them because they put their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, and they're becoming new creations, you see. Baptism this morning is a visible representation of what's already happened invisibly in their heart. They were buried with Christ in baptism, right, under the water, symbolically, then raised up to newness of life, You see, suffering with Jesus under the weight of their sin that has caused all kinds of things not to go right in their lives, just as it has all kinds of things not to go right in our lives, but raised up the newness of life. It's a visual representation. It also is a visual representation for every single person in this room as you carry the weight of your own struggle and your own suffering and you look forward to resurrection, you see. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you identify with him in his burial and in his resurrection to come. This is a celebration for us as a body. And I'm going to invite us into it with vigor. Okay, so here's how, here's how this is going to work. We're, we're going to embed our baptisms into a song, into a worship song, right? And part of that is because we want to give credit to where credit is due. So we're going to sing praises to Jesus Christ before and, and during and after these baptisms. But also, I want you to cheer. When these ladies come out of the water, give it up. We cheer for touchdowns, you know. We, we, we cheer for, for political victories. Maybe not a lot of those these days. We, we cheer for all kinds of other things right? There should be nothing in our lives we celebrate more than this. This is the work of Christ in us, in our body, right? Let's celebrate with these ladies. So let me pray for us, for them, and then we'll enter in a time of worship as we celebrate baptism together. Our Father, we thank you for being a God who loves us enough to send Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we thank you for being the one who stood up to that closed door in your life and willingly submitted yourself to the will of the Father. And and God, we need that. We need that attitude through your spirit. I pray for those that are suffering and struggling that they would have faith in you despite the fact that they're in a hard spot. And I pray for those that are not in hard spots that they would submit themselves to you and say, whatever you have for me, whether good or not, I open my hands to you. And we do know, Father, that all of it is ultimately for good. And we believe that. Help us to believe it more. Thank you for these two women. Thank you for Laura. Thank you for Jeanette. Thank you for the way that you've worked in their lives. We're excited to celebrate with them this morning. This is a work that only you could have done. You have opened the door to your eternal kingdom for these two women. And no one will shut it. We celebrate with them and we celebrate with you this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.